But this morning, if you'll take your copy of God's Word and open to the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 5. We'll be taking a break from our exciting, riveting, overwhelming study through the book of Revelation, and we'll be considering 1 Samuel 5 today. In 1811, on the east bank of the Mississippi, in the territory that was known as New Orleans, it was a section of land that was known as the German Coast. It was known as the German Coast. It was, a, uh, it was an area that was owned by German settlers, and it was mostly sugar plantations. And of course, in 1811, the plantations were worked by, by African slaves. But on January the 8th, 1811, a small group of about a hundred black slaves revolted, took up arms, and marched towards New Orleans with the hopes of leading a full-fledged slave rebellion. Well, the, short, the, re, the revolt was really rather short-lived. It, it only lasted for, for two days, but in those two days, slaves burned five plantation houses, destroyed crops, and killed two white men before they were stopped by a local militia. But in the days that followed, white planners and officials hunted down all who they suspected played a part in the uprising. And in response to the two white men who died, they killed 95 black men for their part in the uprising. And in order to make an example of these men, many of these men were decapitated. And their heads, their severed heads, were sent to plantations all over the territory and placed on tall pikes, tall poles, as a warning to slaves of what would happen if they tried to revolt again. Now this is a startling, gruesome opening to a sermon, but I share this, this piece of history with you because in the text we have before us today, we're going to read of someone else that loses his head as a warning for the sake of others. Yet this time... It's Yahweh who breaks off the head of the god Dagon, the idol god of the Philistines, as a warning to the Philistines, to the Israelites, and to the people of Trinity Baptist Church that our God is not a God to be toyed with. He will not tolerate rival gods for long. Now, the text in 1 Samuel 5 this morning uh, is, we've been working through the book of 1 Samuel on Wednesday evenings, and we've been seeing that this is not a book that is just for children, right? It's not just full of children's stories, a decapitated idols, a strange children's story anyways. But we are seeing that it's a book full of necessary and often frightening lessons about the danger of sin, and more specifically, the goodness of God and His redemptive plan to save His people out of sin. But today we're picking up in the middle of the story, now, the book of 1 Samuel, 1 and 2 Samuel together, are, in another sense, the middle of another bigger story. And so, if we go all the way back to Genesis 1, Genesis 1 and 2, we learn that in the very beginning, God created man not just to live with other people, but that we were to live in fellowship with God. Man was created to live in constant, unbroken fellowship with God. But we know that sin ruins a relationship with a holy God. And when Adam and Eve sinned, their perfect fellowship with God was broken. 
And they were kicked outside of the garden, away from God, outside of his presence. And to make this point even more clear, the Bible makes it uh, vivid for us when it says that God placed giant angels of fire with swords at the gate of the garden to remind us, to remind humans that because of sin, God cannot dwell with man. That because of our sin, we have been alienated from God. We are outside of the garden and away from the life-giving, joyful presence of God. Because of God's holy hatred for sin, God cannot live with man any more than a crocodile could live with a baby goat. It's not an option. Now, if this sounds surprising to you, or maybe if this sounds even cruel, like a mean God that you don't like, well then, you need to consider 1 Samuel with me today. If I was to give you a brief cook's tour of what we've done in 1 Samuel so far, we would see that God's people Israel, who are now in the promised land, are living in a time of incredible spiritual darkness. It was incredibly dark. The people of God had forgotten God by not forgetting that he existed, but by disregarding his laws, by ignoring his commands. And up until this point, God had been working to make a new way for God to dwell with people. Remember, sin alienates us from God, and so God was establishing a new way for God to once again dwell with man. That if God's people would obey, and if we would make special sacrifices for sin, then God's people could once again enjoy some measure of the blessing of God's presence. But the problem was, was that Israel was failing to keep their part of the deal. Even the priests, the text says that even the priests, the the leaders of the people of God who oversaw the worship and the sacrifice, the way that they were to be right with God, the leaders in Israel's day were so wicked that the text says that they were openly sleeping with women and prostitutes in the gate of the temple, or the gate of the tabernacle. A blatant disregard by God's leaders, the people's leaders. So what did God do? God killed them. God killed them. Things were looking very bleak in Israel. And we begin to, in the text, get a glimmer of hope of in this little boy Samuel, the birth of a little boy Samuel, reminding us that there would once again be a day where a little boy was born that brought great hope to the world. But this little boy Samuel, he's coming onto the scene, but he's not quite there yet. And what we're going to see is that things are about to get a lot worse before they start to get better. This past Wednesday in chapter 4, we saw how on two separate occasions, God defeated his own people, Israel. Do you know God does that? God defeated and slaughtered his own people, Israel. God used the Philistines to kill Israel's wicked priests, Hophni and Phinehas, and as well with 30,000 other Israelites. But the worst part, even worse than that, was that the ark of God was captured. The ark of God, the, the, the very presence of God. The ark, the ark was a sacred piece of furniture in Israel that symbolized, the, in a very literal way, the throne or the presence or uh, the ruling place, the sacrificial place of the presence of God. 
And when it was captured, it was such a traumatic event that it literally killed people. The priest Eli, when he heard that the ark had been captured, fell over, broke his neck, and died. One of the priest's widows, when she heard that the ark had been captured, she gave birth and immediately died, but not before she cried out, Ichabod, the glory of God has left Israel. Because of sin, God temporarily left his people. He withdrew from his people. And so this is where we pick up the story today in chapter 5. And the chapter in front of us, it actually doesn't have much to do with Israel. It's, it's not so much about, it's not about an account of God's people, but of the Philistines, the people who captured the ark. Now, we're not going to cover it all today, but I do want to give you a larger snapshot of what's going on in this portion of 1 Samuel. Over the next couple of chapters and what we read today, we'll see that the ark of God is, is moving around. First, the ark is placed in the Philistines' city Ashdod with the god or their, their god Dagon. But they can't handle the presence of God there. So they kick it on over to another town, of the town of Gath. Well, they can't handle it either. So they send it on to Ekron. And then eventually they can't handle it. So they put it on a cart, put some cows on it, and just send it on its way back to Israel. And what we read in chapter 6 and 7 is that when the ark of the presence of God, when it came back to Israel, 70 men looked at it, and God killed them. God struck 70 Israelites dead for looking upon the ark. The picture is that the ark of God is moving around and God is wreaking deadly havoc wherever it goes. I'd encourage you to flip over to chapter 6 and find verse 20 because finally in verse 20, the men of Israel ask the question that I hope is coming on to your mind right now. Who is able to stand before the Lord? this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us? Friends, that is the question that is before us and before the human race. Who can stand before this God? We're comfortable with the domesticated God. We're comfortable with the Santa Claus sort of God that gives us stuff, who's kind of up there. We call on him when we need some help. But who can stand before this God, as one commentator calls him, this man of war? So let's have this question from 6, verse 20, ringing in our minds as we read 1 Samuel chapter 5. I'd invite for you to follow along with me and see I'm not making this up, but this is the Word of God. 1 Samuel chapter 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face forward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and they put him back in his place. When they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he 
terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. Verse 9. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of the God of God back to Ekron. So, but as the people of the ark of God came to Ekron, Excuse me, but as soon as the ark of the God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent, therefore, and they gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the hearing of his word. Father, as we come together as your people today, we confess that we have too small a view of you. And I pray, Father, that no matter what our circumstances are, if we're distracted, if we're bored, if we don't want to be here, if we came because we were forced to, or if we came hungry for your word. Father, would you give us a sense of the weight of your hand? Would you give us a sense of your beauty and your awesome majesty? Would you strike in our hearts a fear of idols that we would not fall into the hands of a living God? Work in our life, we pray. I pray, Father, that my words today would fall to the ground, blow away, and be forgotten, because we don't need to hear from me. We need to hear from you. So let your word take root in our hearts and grow with much fruit, we pray. Amen. Well, the first, the first uh, point that we see in this text is really easy to come by. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be very perceptive to pick up on the main point here. In verse 2, after conquering the Philistines, or let me, let me share the main point with you. It's so obvious. The point is so obvious that the God, the God of Israel, the God Yahweh, will utterly destroy any and every idol that stands against him. The God of Israel will utterly destroy any and every idol that is set up against him. In verse 2, we see that the Philistines, after conquering the Israelites, took the ark of God and went away and put it up as a trophy in one of their gods' houses, Dagon. So, the story goes, I love how the author describes this. You get this picture of the, Israel, uh, the Philistines flipped off the light, went to bed, but when they woke up the next morning, apparently Dagon didn't have a chance to eat his Wheaties because they found that their little god had tipped over. Whoops. Oh, look, he's laying face down before the ark. So what do you do when your God falls over? What do you do? Well, you got to pick him up. You pick him up, you dust him off, make sure he's okay, 
polish him a little bit, make sure he's charged up, and you put him back in his place. And so night comes again, and everyone goes to bed. The same story, except this time, verse 4, oops, the head of Dagon and both of his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Isn't this great? We, you can almost hear the smile of the author of 1 Samuel. This is a regular Humpty Dumpty situation, right? The, not only is Dagon unable to keep himself from falling over, and not only can he not help but fall down before the ark of God, but it appears that he is unable to keep his head and to keep his hands, to keep them from being cut off. The god Dagon was decapitated by our god Yahweh. Do you see this in the text, right? Now, before we go much further, there are many lessons for us here, and before we consider them, we must first try to bring this a little bit closer to home, because I'm willing to bet that no one here has ever been tempted to worship Dagon, right? I'd ask for a show of hands, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's necessary. We are probably not tempted to set up an Asherah pole. We probably have never been tempted to put a Buddha on the mantle or, or anything like that. But friends, that does not mean that our hearts are not drawn towards idols. It does not mean that our hearts are not drawn towards idols. We all have other gods, idols, competing with God for the worship and the affection and the love of our hearts. You see, an idol is anything that we set up in our hearts in place of God. Let me say that again. An idol is anything that we set up in our hearts in place of God. It's, it's anything other than God that we look, for, look to for security or for significance or for happiness. It's anything that we're willing to serve, to, to give our money and our time and our attention and our efforts to. It's, it's the thing that we live for. It's the thing that gives your life meaning. And our idols are just as dangerous as Dagon. In fact, I'd suggest they're probably even more dangerous because our idols are not as easily identified as the idol Dagon is. We don't put them in a house, usually. We don't put them on the mantle. Instead, our idols are disguised in the normal activities of our lives. The things we do, the decisions we make, the things we feel. Our idols are the things that we spend most of our time thinking about apart from God. They're the things that seem to give our lives meaning and significance. They are the thing that we look to to find self-worth. Or perhaps it's the thing that we look to that we are the most afraid of losing. What is the thing in your life that you are most afraid of losing that may be an idol you're tempted to worship? Our idols are the things that give us comfort other than God or more than God. They could be the feeling that, it could be the feeling that comes from eating food or the feeling from exercise. It could be uh, being in a specific relationship or pursuing a specific career or a certain lifestyle in retirement. It could be a hobby or an interest. It could be a person or a thing. But idols all have one thing in common. Our idols seduce us into thinking that they can provide more happiness than God, more safety than God, 
more comfort than God. The Philistines had hundreds of idols. The Greeks had thousands of idols. The Hindus today have millions of idols. How many idols do you think Americans have? I think one of the best ways, if you were to try to pinpoint a few of the most tempting idols in your life, one of the best ways to test is to ask this simple question. If I only had blank, then I would be happy. If I could just have this, then I would be happy. Maybe it's a better marriage. Maybe it's a more affluent lifestyle. Maybe it's the attention of a specific boy. Maybe it's children. Maybe it's children that love God. Maybe it's children that do what is right. Whatever it is, whatever your happiness is built upon, that's what you worship. In my estimation, the most worshiped idol in American culture is the idol of self. We're a people who love our freedom. We want to be free from tyranny, but we also want to be free, it seems, from God. We don't want to have a life with any restraints. We're a people who worship our things. We worship the temporary moments of pleasure, that feeling that comes from buying a new phone, or that feeling that comes in your most recent sexual experience, or the feeling that comes when you taste butter and sugar and salt, or that ding on your phone that says, someone likes you. We worship anything that makes us feel good. And the God of Israel, the God of the church, looks across the American landscape of idols, these lifeless things that he created, not to be worshiped, but to enjoy so that we would see his goodness, to point us to him. He looks upon them with jealousy and with fury. He will not have it. Our God will not tolerate rival gods for long. Yahweh is a God who beheads his idols, his rivals. Now, this doesn't mean that God takes them down immediately. It seems that God in his wisdom permits idols to succeed for a little while. That they enjoy temporary success. In his sovereignty, he allows his rivals to live and prosper for a little while. Even the god Dagon survived a second night sharing a room with the Lord of hosts. But make no mistake about it, friends. God will take them down. One by one, every one of them. He's gunning for them. It may seem to us that the sexual revolution is mowing down the church. But make no mistake about it. When it's all said and done, the gods of this age and all the gods the sexual revolution has offered us, they will all lay face down before Yahweh with their heads across the room and their hands across the room because the God of heaven thunders, I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. You see, the pattern of human history is that once God topples one of our sacred cows, one of our idols, one of the things that we set up, human's tendency, human, humanity's tendency has not been to repent. Our tendency has been to dust it off and stand it back up. When God decapitates it, we find a new one, something 
something else that will satisfy us, something else that will make us feel good, something else that promises happiness without restraint. We go from idol to idol to idol, looking for anything that will bring happiness apart from God. But the armless, headless, little God Dagon should be a reminder to us that no matter how many idols we fashion for ourselves, and no matter how long God permits these little guys to reign, he's going to bring them all down. Isaiah 42 reminds us, I am the Lord, that is my name. I, my glory I will not give to another, and my praise I will not give to carved idols. But here's the thing. It's not just carved idols. It's not just the idols that we set up in our lives that are in God's crosshairs. But it's also those who worship and serve them. Which brings us to our second point this morning. We see from this text that God will bring judgment on all who worship and serve idols. God will bring judgment on all who worship and serve idols. You see, when the Philistines saw what happened to their god Dagon, it, the story didn't end there, right? Because ultimately, idols aren't really the problem. Dagon was a block of wood or stone or whatever. Idols aren't really the problem. The problem is those who make them and those who worship them. Verse 6 describes how the hand of God was hard. It was heavy upon the Philistines. The Lord struck them down in city after city after city with what most, most scholars think is a version of the bubonic plague. A deadly plague which brought terror, the text says, and suffering and death to young and old all throughout the land of the Philistines. And so in their, in their horror, the people in the first city, the people of Ashdod, they, they shipped the ark down, down the road to a neighboring village, the, the neighboring town of Gath. What happened there? God struck them too. So they sent it on down the road to Ekron until finally the people of Ekron, they said, we cannot have any more of this. We want to send the ark back to Israel. And we can chuckle at the picture of this headless Philistine God bowing down before the ark. I think we probably, we probably should. We can cheer at the, at the promise to know that God is going to slay his rivals. But friends, we must also tremble. We must tremble at the realization that God brings judgment not just on idols, but on those who worship and serve them. The golden calf did not just jump out of the fire like Aaron claimed. They fashioned it, and they chose to worship it. Our idols are not guilty of idolatry. Idolatries are guilty of idolatry. Paul picks up on this theme in Romans chapter 1 when he's describing the problem of the world, he says that the wrath of God, God's anger, God's uh, fury, his, his hatred towards sin is being revealed against all ungodliness. Well, what's ungodliness? Well, Paul describes it as a worship exchange. It's when we exchange the glory of God for something that he made. We find our worth not in God, but in something that he created. It's an exchange of glory. And my friends, sin is idolatry. 
all sin is idolatry, which brings the wrath of God. Just as God's judgment accompanied the ark of God as it traveled from Philistine city to city, so judgment will come to all who worship and serve anyone but Yahweh. But we need to pause and think very carefully. Because we should recognize also from this text that the problem I've the problem of idolatry was not just a Philistine problem, right? It wasn't just a problem that the pagan nation somewhere out there had. It was a problem for the people of God. The problem of idolatry is not just a problem for the nations. The problem of idolatry lingers in the church. This is why in 1 John chapter 5, when John is ending his letter to the church, he says, little children... Keep yourselves from idols. We in the church are prone to go back to other gods, to other lovers, and all of this leaves us asking the question, if all of sin is idolatry, and idolatry is sin, and we are all in some sense guilty, who can stand before this God? When the ark of God went back to Israel, God struck 70 more people dead for looking upon it. God struck the Philistines and God struck Israel. Who can stand before this God? This God is a problem. If we're all sinners, if we have all worshipped idols in some form or fashion, then who can draw near to Him? Who can be near a God who decapitates idols and drops the bubonic plague on those who worship them? Well, it seems like we're back to the same problem that we saw at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis. We're back to the problem in the garden. How can a holy God dwell with sinful man? What sinner can stand the heavy hand of God? This is what we could call, as we have said before, the problem of God. He's a problem because you can't just ignore him. You can't just kick him on down to another city. And I think the danger that we have is we're fine with God having some place of worship in our life as long as he's beside the God of sports and the God of fitness and the God of relationships and the God of stuff. But God demands exclusive worship. You can't pretend that he is not there. You can't pass him by. You're not safe just because you're here. You're not safe just because you're among the people of God because you can't put God on the shelf. You can't get a little dose of spiritual goodness from the Bible and then head home to your idols. God is not a good luck charm. He is not a rabbit's foot or a toy to be tinkered with. And we're reminded that in some sense we have all been infected by the plague. Death is already in us. We're all already sick. Death is coming for us. You can put your head in the sand. You can pretend that all is fine. But church, we come face to the face with the fact that one day every man must reckon with the living God. So what do we do? What is the cure? Well, the story of Samuel is the same story of the whole Bible, that those who come to God must come to God on his own terms. And since man doesn't come to God on his own, God came down to us. The man, Jesus Christ, was born out of Israel, 
a nation of idolaters, to save Israel, a nation of idolaters, and to save the nations, nations of idolaters. Jesus Christ came, and even though he lived a life that was perfectly free from all idolatry, he bore the curse of idolatry. On the cross, Christ was infected with the plague of our sin, though he had done nothing wrong. The heavy hand of God fell fully upon him, and in doing so, Jesus Christ spilled his perfect blood, which is able to take away our guilt and our sin. This is the story of the gospel, that for all who repent, for all who place their hope in him, for all who forsake their idols, they can be cured and safe from the wrath of God. The little headless, armless God, Dagon of the Philistines, reminds us that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Friends, this is a scary text. If you're comfortable right now, if you're not a little bit disturbed, then you should think if you're really paying attention, we cannot make the same mistake. We cannot use God to get his goodies. The whole point of 1 Samuel 5 is to remind us of not just the danger of worthless idols, but to compel us to worship the God of Israel that is revealed in this passage. And so it leaves us asking, who is this God? Who is like this God? And so as we close, let me just draw a couple aspects of God's character to your attention this morning. This text shows us that God is an utterly self-sufficient God. Utterly self-sufficient. Unlike us, unlike our idols, God stands un, utterly unopposed and self-sufficient. He doesn't need to be fed. He doesn't need to be picked up. He doesn't get knocked down. I think it's hilarious in this text. He doesn't even need soldiers to defeat his wars or take him back home. Acts 17 reminds us that the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man as though he needed anything because he himself gives mankind life and breath and everything. He is a self-sufficient God. But we also see in this text that he is a living God. He is a living God while the idols of this world promise. And friends, I know they are persuasive. The idols in our lives promise to deliver satisfaction, happiness, a good feeling, security, pleasure. They can't deliver. They cannot deliver. They're dead. They're dead. Only God can deliver. Only God can satisfy you. He alone is the living God. My hero, Martin Lloyd-Jones, is talking about this point. He said that when you think that you have him defeated, then he's active. When you think you have him captive, he knocks down your God. He is a God who cannot be restrained, unlimitable, absolute, eternal. He is the living God. You can't manipulate him. You can't control him. You can't commandeer him. God is there, and he is the absolute reality to whom all nations must reckon. He is the living God. But this text also reveals in terrifying fashion that he's a mighty warrior God. He is not the 
cuddly Santa Claus guy that Americans have often painted him as. He is warrior God. Oh, how heavy is the hand of God upon sinners. With it, he defeated his own people Israel in chapter 4. And then he turned around and defeated the Philistines without any help at all. Yahweh defeated and destroyed the armies of Pharaoh in the Red Sea and drove out the nations before Israel. And Hannah got it right when she's saying in chapter 2, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And it was this mighty God who was one day willing to slay his son on the cross. What sinner can stand before him? Do you think you will escape? Who can stand and face his wrath and his fury? He is the mighty warrior God, the Lord of hosts. But we also see that he is the only true God. He stands alone as the only true God and is jealous for his glory. Isaiah 46, and, and he declares to his people, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. And he declares to his people that we should remember the salvation of the Lord and not to treasure other gods in our hearts. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, so you shall have no other gods before me. Church, he has saved us. Let's worship him alone. And we also see that he is a God who saves. This warrior God, the God of Israel, this man of war, though he hates sins and busts the heads of his enemies, he's also a God of mercy. The God who saves. Psalm 68 verse 20 tells us, our God is a God of salvation, and to God the Lord belong deliverances from death. Have you been delivered from death? The text calls us to ask, who can stand before him? And the answer is he who has clean hands and a pure heart, washed by the blood of Jesus. The text also calls to us, who is like him? Who is like our God? And the Bible thunders, no one. Church, let that be on our hearts. There is no one like our God. So blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore.